Well, it's July and I'm back. I know the month of June just got past me. I did 21 days on the road in June. The world has opened back up again, uh, at least the part of the world called the United States. Uh, and for those of us who were doing everything virtually, we actually got out of this little square and we were in planes and trains and automobiles. And I was finding myself with a question I used to ask myself, like, is the bathroom to the left or to the right when I wake up in the middle of the night? I, I couldn't remember in the old days. Well, I didn't have any problems with that in the year and a half I stayed at home. I kind of figured that out. Um, anyway, speaking of figuring things out, uh, my entire career is thanks to this gentleman. I, I mean, sincerely, I, I, uh, at the time I'd been working in healthcare and organizational development, and I've been working, you know, a lot with the idea of customer service and how to make sure every single service transaction was the same. And then this genius, along with a fellow genius, James Gilmore, and my guest today, Joe Pine, put together a book in 1999 that rocked my world, rocked the world, I think, for pretty much everyone. It changed the entire way we saw economic value and all that service stuff, that consistency of service stuff, that was so yesterday. And they were speaking to what was really driving consumers. And because I came to know him in 1999 through that book, I mean, I only knew him through the book, to be quite honest with you. We had no personal relationship going there. But for as far as I was concerned, he was like my best friend. Um, I then went back and read his book from 1993 called Mass Customization. Uh, I've been attentive to a book that was really a series of articles in 2000 called Market of One. Um, we'll talk some about 2007 and his book Authenticity. We'll take you through 2011 when he did Infinite Possibility, this time kind of going it uh, with uh, Kim Korn. And then uh, we'll talk about the, the re-release the re which is kind of interesting to me because he talks about re's and uns back in the days of finding authenticity, I think. Uh, but the re-release of the experience economy in 2020, he is no other than the transformationalist in the field of customer experience, Joe Pine. How is that for an introduction? I didn't have time for the a, interview because I had that is a wonderful introduction. That was very gratifying to hear. I was so excited now I even knocked my headphones out <laughs> talking to you. It's like way I'm way out of control here. All right. So let's talk about uh, this little journey of yours. I mean, I don't know that I know how you got to writing mass customization and where you were in your career when you decided you were going to start publishing your thought leadership. So can we take it back that far? Sure, sure. And so you go back that far. Uh, I was I worked for IBM, and I was a um, I worked in uh, competitive analysis and performance analysis, and I, I worked up into a strategy job where I realized that that every customer that we had was in fact unique, and they wanted the the mini computers that we produced to do different things, and 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 we just really didn't take that into account when we developed this new system called the AS400 in the late 1980s. And um, so I went and searched for how do we solve that problem. I came across Stan Davis's book, uh, Future Perfect. And uh, for me, that's, I, you know, I, I think of Stan the way you think of me, evidently, is that uh, it was like the, the heavens opened up, the angels sang. When I read his book, particularly his chapter on mass customizing, right? Mass customizing is efficiently serving customers uniquely. So I worked to get that into our plans and strategies at IBM, and then they sent me to MIT for a year to get my master's degree, found out how to do a thesis. I said, boom, I'm going to do a thesis on mass customization, and I'm going to turn it into a book, right? That was my whole goal. 
Ah, no idea that it was, you know, this is, this book was just a thesis in disguise. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. So the, yeah, the first four chapters and the appendix are my thesis. And then the rest of it, I expanded when I got back to IBM and I uh, was able to get a contract with Harvard Business School Press to be able to, to publish it. So it came out actually in late 1992. And, and a, a quick little story is I can remember, I finally got to meet Stan Davis. He wrote the forward of the book, Harvard arranged that. Uh, I was in Boston. We had dinner together. At the end of dinner, he he uh, takes out this little piece of paper and writes a note on it. And he folds it over and he slides it across the table. And I said, I said, what's this? He said, well, you know, it's it's my prediction for you. I said, well, you want to open it now or later? And I and he said, whatever you want. So I opened it then, and it said, you will leave IBM within a year. And I said, no way. I love IBM. Look at the opportunities that they gave me and all of this sort of stuff. And then six months later, I called him up and said, you were right. And ever since then, it's been a matter of uh, working with my partner, Jim Gilmore, and others to be able to figure out what's going on in the world of business and then develop frameworks that, pre that describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. You know, it's, it seems like it's that moment in one's life where you have to say, I love what I do, but I think there could be a bigger platform for me. And well, am I willing to gamble on myself, right? Like the, the gig at IBM was a pretty much guaranteed long-term career uh, phenomena. But now all of a sudden you're going to have to go out there and prove your worth, not only through mass customization, which was considered, I think, one of the best books in 1993. I don't know where I was in 1993, but it was actually <laughs> later reviewed and considered as such. Um, so, but you did take that risk. And, and, how did you find uh, James Gilmore? Because the two of you think in very powerful ways. I've read some of his independent work as well. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll mention, you know, it's, it's been 28 years this week, actually, that I left IBM. And my wife's still not sure it's going to work out, but so far, so good. <laughs> uh, but Jim, in fact, uh, sent me a letter. Email almost came out of my mouth. But no, he sent me a letter in the mail with a videotape around March, April uh, after, uh, of 93, after the book came out. And he said he read it and, and he found it on a bookstore shelf in Cleveland, Ohio. And he said that his reaction was, oh, shoot, somebody else has already written it. Because he was thinking along the same lines and wanted to write a book on it. So he contacted me, sent me a videotape of him talking about mass customization. Uh, and then once I left, I said, you know, I need clients. Who was that guy in Cleveland who sent me that videotape? You know, and we connected and he he, he worked for um, a Cleveland Consulting Associates that eventually became part of CSC. And so he hired me and we worked together and eventually we figured out, hey, let's 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 go out on our own. You know, particularly after I shared my ideas on, on what I always say, discovery. I didn't invent it. I discovered the experience economy uh, and I shared it with Jim. He loved that. And so with that basis, we, we went out our, uh, and created the, uh, the firm Strategic Horizons LLP in early 1996. So we actually celebrated our 25th anniversary earlier this year. So forgive me for, uh, oops, I got my head in the experience economy. That's what <laughs> you really should forget. This is how much the experience economy has affected me. I'm nothing except a, a charlatan behind the experience economy. <laughs> All right. So, the, you know, the, I was going to say, forgive me for putting up the more modern version of the book cover. This book cover has had so many variations. I've seen ticket stubs on the front yeah. cover. I mean, there's all kinds of variations, but uh, I will get myself out of the picture so I can duly show uh, the experience economy. This is the book that did it for me, right? I um, And I started consulting for Starbucks, which was really interesting, and then did my first book uh, on behalf of Starbucks in 2006. So I, I had 
previously done a book on the Pike Place Fish Market, which I think, thank you very much for that, by the way, a little gratuitous. <laughs> and, you know, Pike actually, I act like you're doing it for me. You're the one who wrote about it in the experience economy. But but I was working at the Pike Place Fish Market with Johnny Yokoyama prior to doing that and wrote a book about him. And, and it's interesting because Howard Schultz says that the fish market, the throwing of fish over at the Pike Place Fish Market was partly influential in his thinking about experience economies. And it's funny to me how these things all kind of coalesce. But when I read your book, I'm like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. And then later in my life, I find myself doing, working for one of the brands that you really make a point about. Like coffee is the ultimate in evolution from you know, a prior generation of raw material based economies to produced economies to experiential economies. Can we can we just will you indulge me in that storytelling sure. for a moment? It's it's my you know, it's one of my favorite stories. It's it perfectly exemplifies this progression of economic value that we talk about as the, the core framework in the book is coffee at its core is commodities. It's beans that you grow in the ground and then extract out of the ground and sell it on the open marketplace. And if you look up the future price of coffee and convert it from a per pound to a per cup basis, coffee costs two or three cents per cup when you treat it as a commodity. But you take those beans and you roast them, you grind them, you package them, you put them on a grocery store shelf, and now you get five, 10, 15 cents per cup of coffee, an order of magnitude more. Uh, then if you perform the service of actually brewing it for a customer in a, in a vending machine, a kiosk, a corner data, a corner diner, a bodega, or, or, or 7-Eleven somewhere, now you get 50 cents, dollar, dollar and a half, two dollars per cup of coffee, but you surround the brewing of that coffee with the ambiance and theater of a Starbucks, and now how much you paying, it's three, four, five dollars. So you have one industry with four distinct levels of value, all dependent on what business do you think you're in. And Joe, I'm hoping you can verify something. Give sure. that experience. That's what I'm here for. Is I'm all, right. all here for you. So we, you know, we 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 talk about Starbucks is opening opens the book, right? Starbucks and, and that coffee progression. Uh, in the theater chapter, chapter six, we talk about the Pike Place Fish Market, which is like the most wonderful theater. And I say, if you can do it with fish, right? You can do it a commodity, then you can do it with anything. Um, and and when you go to the original Pike Place uh, Starbucks, right, just down the row from, from the fish market, one of the things they did when they converted that, because originally Starbucks was a manufacturer, right? People forget that. It, it didn't bloom out of Howard Schultz. It was originally a manufacturer, and then they saw the, the possibilities Howard Schultz did in, in coffee drinking experiences. So in that original one, you go there, and I haven't been there in a while, but I assume it's still the case. You'd have the, you, you go in, the order counter is on the right, They'd make it in the back left and they would throw the, after they ride in the cup, they throw the cup over. And I, I always thought that has to be an homage to the fish market, right? It is, is absolutely, it's totally, completely, 100% the case. Um, yes. You know, functionally it was necessary in a way because right, it, was totally it was, wasn't a good workflow in that <laughs> right. building given its uh, its retrofit, but absolutely that's where that comes from. And it, you know, it's it's a wonderful, that, that whole area is just like a dynamic place for retail yeah. safaris, right? If you want to look at experience. Yeah, I call, I call them experience expeditions, but often yeah. take places and we take, when we go to, you, when you go to Seattle, you got to go to Pike Place Fish Market, you got to go to the REI, the number one tourist destination, uh, Seattle yeah. retail store and- uh, we digress. Let's get on to right. your <laughs> thought leadership uh, as much as I'd like to talk about Starbucks and, and Pike Place Fish Market. Um, this evolution of your thinking, and I think most people know that, that it was a Harvard Business Review article, I think probably even drew more attention to right. it. Um, it's one of those Harvard Business Review articles I keep in a folder 
just to hum humble myself and remind myself it's kind of the easy way to get the primer. Yeah, it's it's always there for you. Uh, but then I got to tell you, I, I um, markets of one grabbed me, but not as much as authentic authenticity. Authenticity for me, when I ran into that book, I thought it was the counterbalance. You know, a lot of people when they got into staging experiences um, got into inauthenticity around the mindset, right? Like if I could do a show without any authentic soul in it, uh, it was going to be staging the experience economy. So I thought this book could not have been more powerfully timely. And it caused us to think a lot about, you know, when do you say you're authentic? When, when do you prove you're authentic? Uh, what do you do if you have things that are inauthentic about your experience delivery? So can you just jump us ahead now? I'm jumping, what, eight years maybe ahead to, uh, to authenticity? Right. Well, so authenticity is really a reaction to the fact that whenever we talk about the experience economy, people naturally bring up issues of authenticity. They, they um, in particular, I remember going, I became a visiting professor at the University of Amsterdam, I was going to the Netherlands all the time. And I talked to Netherlands, uh, Dutch audiences. They would, they would, uh, the Q&A always had one question that was really more of an accusation. And it was you Americans and you Americans, you like your plastic, your fantasy, your Disneyland uh, environments. And, and, and we Dutch, we like our, our, our real, our original, our authentic experiences. And, and this happens so often, as I did more investigation, I've sort of developed a practice response to it. But I would point out that, that it's, it's, you know, one is that no experiences are authentic, inauthentic, right? As long as the people are authentic, because the experience happens inside of us, right? And if we perceive those experiences authentic, then they're authentic. And I said, it's, it, it's, it's always interesting to get this question from the Dutch because the Netherlands is every bit as manufactured as Disneyland is. <laughs> I mean, all the country has been reclaimed from the sea and, and everything has been moved, modified and manicured to look as if it's always been there. It's the only place I've ever gone for a walk in the woods and all the trees are lined up in rows, right? That's, that's what the, the Netherlands is like. But still there's this craving for authenticity. And we see that the world over. And so we wrote the book to talk about what, what does it mean to be able to create authentic offerings? And one of the things we discovered is you can't. <laughs> you can't create authentic offerings. If you look what philosophers say about authenticity, it's that uh, we call it the, the 3M model, that something is, is inauthentic because they generally don't define authenticity. Philosophers only define inauthenticity and said, don't do that or don't be that. But it's inauthentic if it's of, of man, of machine, and of money, right? Of man meaning of, of society done under societal rules, where all corporations are, are done under societal rules and, and so forth. Of machine, you know, with the height of technology today, machine, machines are dehumanizing, uh, and you can't make any offering, sell any offering, distribute any offering without, without machinery involved. And then of money, right? We, we all have that phrase of selling out when you do something just for money. Well, that's what businesses are, are, are in business for, is to make money um, by selling offerings to people. But nonetheless, even, so even though the, the, the offerings themselves are inauthentic, ontologically, to use a big uh, philosophical world, word, phenomenologically, we can perceive them as authentic. So it's managing that perception of authenticity. And we talk about uh, various different ways to do that from from five different genres of authenticity to our real fake matrix to placemaking and and uh, and so on. 
Yeah, this this book was a bit heady. I mean, it, I say that in a loving kind of way, but it it caused me to realize that that what we think of as authentic may not be. I started to go around looking at like restaurants that would say authentic Mexican food, and I would go, "Well, I hope so." I mean, like, <laughs> but but like, what else? What else was it? And then right. if it's not authentic, I mean, it really did create a kind of existential issue for me about like. What is it really? What is real? You know, I don't know. I don't want to get too heavy into that, but the book was powerful in terms of what you needed to do right. to write. And the yourself. first thing to do is don't call yourself authentic. Yeah. <laughs> because immediately, people immediately question why do you have to say that it's authentic Mexican food or whatever it might be? Yeah. I mean, I think the authenticity should be in the intention and the commitment and the activation, right? It's less about the articulation of who you are. Uh, and I think it's also about the way we serve people, right? I mean, it is an intention to be authentically a value. Um, there's something in there about that. Let me kind of, let me, let me go to where you went from there. So, you know, you really started to think more, I, I believe, about the digital applications of everything. Right. And you were ahead of the power curve. I'm trying to remember when you did, um, you know, your next book, but it's probably around 2007-ish. Authenticity was 2007. Okay. Possibility was 2011. 11. Okay. That was where I was going. All right. So let me pop my head out of here so that we can see that book up on your, uh, on your uh, platform here. How, how is it that you and Kim Corn got together? I mean, you had been, I mean, were you being disloyal to James Gilmore? What's going on? Can you just <laughs> no. fess out the no, facts I was, being, I was being authentic to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, so one of the big questions also, in addition to authenticity was, okay, what about digital technology, right? You know, we came out when the World Wide Web was originally in its infancy and so forth. And we really didn't talk much about it at all in the original book, which we also, by the way, updated uh, the Experience County in 2011. So there was an updated edition uh, that we did. And, and sort of simultaneous with that, I thought that we really need to figure out how you create digital experiences or ideally experiences that fuse the real and the virtual. You know, authenticity was about real versus fake. Infinite possibilities about real and virtual. How do you fuse them by using them both at the same time? And, and I developed a framework that sort of describes how it is. It's, it's, it's overly complex the, the way I presented it. But, uh, but uh, you know, I did, show, of course, show it to Jim and everything. But it turned out that uh, you know, Jim's basically a neo-Luddite. <laughs> he does it, not a really big technology fan in any way, shape, or form. So there's no way I could write this book with him. Uh, I barely got him to write the forward to it just for fun. <laughs> and uh, Kim Korn is, uh, is a great guy, lives here in Minnesota near me. Uh, we became friends after I originally um, he worked for Anderson Windows, which was a big proponent of mass customization. And I uh, got to know him through through uh, working and you know, doing a case study on them. And I was helping him with his ideas on how companies can thrive forever, uh, which is still a book yet to be written. And then he began helping me on mine to the point where it just became obvious that, hey, you know, you need some credit for all of the help in figuring this out. Um, and so uh, Kim Korn is uh, is uh, co-author of the book. And I knew Kim Korn through his association with Anderson because I actually oh, yeah. have been a consultant for Renewal by Anderson, the okay. kind of renovation division of Anderson Windows. Actually, they were so kind to me. In 2019, they I was their 
there was their vendor of the year or partner of the year, whatever they call hey. it. And I'm kind of like a small potato, you know I mean? Like they have Salesforce and Medallia yes, and all but, those kind of people. But you are the Joe Michelli experience. That's right. right. And that, and that's thanks to the experience economy by Joe Pine. Uh, I, but you don't get a percentage of my income, just in case you think that you have some claim to that. You probably authentically do, but uh, we won't go there. Let's, uh, you know, the, the beauty of this was, again, I think if you watch your career unfold, for me, the the moment of incredible genius was the definition of the experience economy. So much so that I start calling you an economist, mm -hmm. um, which is probably offensive at some sure. level. But I mean, I think your insights on what are economic drivers are greater than most economists that I ever had run into. And, and, and but you kept iterating on it, right? Like there is a problem with experience if it's inauthentic. So we now address the authenticity issue. And then, but it's limited to say, uh, experiences have to all be staged in a real world face-to-face -face brick and mortar. So now we do, you know, this infinite uh, possibility sort of opportunity. So, and then there was the redoing in, in 2011 of the experience economy, and again in 2020. So let's talk a little about the 2020 version of the book and what's the, you know, why should people go out and buy it again if they bought it in 1999 already? Well, you know, I, I know a number of people that like read it every year. They've read it more than I have. And so, um, you know, so it will reward further readings. Um, but the, the main thing we added in the 2020 version is a new preview that puts it in the context of today, particularly talking about it as a subtitle test that every company in the world is competing against every other company in the world for the time, attention, and money of individual uh, customers. You know, and time is uh, limited. We can only experience things 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we gotta fit sleep in there sometime. And if somebody does capture my time and I'm spending it with them some experience that they've created, well then what I'm not doing is I'm not spending that with you. And attention is scarce. You know, in, in today's media fragmented world, everybody's trying to capture eyeballs. Uh, it's incredibly scarce to, to capture people's attention. But if they do grab my attention, then what am I not doing is, again, I'm not spending that attention with you. And finally, money is consumable. If I have a dollar to spend and I spend it with some other company in some other industry and in, in some other geographic area, what can I do with that dollar again is I can't spend it with you. So, so it does point to the fact that, that you need to stage experiences that are engaging in order to capture people's time, attention, and money. And we introduced a few new exemplars in there. Actually, only two exemplars in that new preview. We think these are like our favorite ones in the world. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and some new frameworks, including what I like, the, the money value of time, uh, which is a measurement of how- I, And I love that. I think you talk about time as currency. Yeah. I, I, again, all the more reason to claim you're an economist. I mean, but, but I think that's a brilliant thing. And with my clients a lot, you know, when we're talking with consultative functions, trying to get that across is so critical, right? I mean, my if I'm gonna invest my time with you, Joe, I want a story to tell on the backside of it. I wanna make it shareable. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jim actually does have an economics degree, uh, but I'm an amateur economist, but uh, it is it's basically just seeing what's going on in, in, in the world and the, and the fact that, that measuring time is so important today because what experiences really are is time well spent. Right. You, you know, you talked earlier, Joe, about uh, your original work in customer service and services are about time well saved. Right. And you get very good at that. But experiences are time well spent. The people actually value the time that they spend with you. So how do you create a, a time worthy experiences? And 
And what we do in the new preview also is we put the rest of the, the book in context of saying you need five elements, that you need to stage experiences that are robust, cohesive, personal, dramatic, and even transformative. And when you do that, you will be, out to, be able to outcompete all the others and get people to spend their time with you, uh, give you their attention, and then pay up by spending their money as a result. All right, we have all these people jumping in, talking to me, wishing me back, or, you know, there's so many Joes on here, I'm not sure who they're talking about anymore, but here's a Joe, <laughs> yet another Joe, just because we don't have enough of them here. Joe, and I think he's talking about you, obviously, is hitting a key chord to relationships as authenticity and conversation either drives it forward or slows it down. So kind of relationships are a function of authenticity and that people can perceive what is genuine and if you can help them. What's your uh, your reaction to the role of authenticity in relationship building and our ability to sense, uh, like at an innate level, right. the, the authenticity around us? Well, it's um, uh, it, you, you think about personal relationships, right? You need to be authentic in personal relationships because eventually the people you relate to are going to sniff it out and realize that you're not and avoid you. And it's like, you know, I said earlier about, about uh, you know, the first axiom of, of authenticity is if you are authentic, you don't have to say you're authentic, right? Because imagine the first time we meet, Joe, and, and you know, I, and I reach out to shake your hand and I say, I just want you to know that, that I'm incredibly authentic as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> You're really going to go like this and slowly back away, holding your wallet as you go. But companies do that all the time. So don't proclaim it, right? You need to, uh, to be it in order to form those relationships. Now, I'll mention this. One of the things I hate about loyalty uh, programs, right, because they're, they're, they're so inauthentic, like because they're bribery. Right? It's not about true loyalty. True loyalty is when I stay with you even when you screw me over. Right, That's true loyalty. True loyalty is not when I stay with you because you have these little breadcrumbs that you give me that allow me to get what I'm already buying for you at, for free. Right, That's just a ridiculous thing to do. And what I was- Yeah, I've got a great quick little story because I completely agree and I, I counsel in the same way. But I remember talking to Howard Schultz early on and I said, yeah. you know, why don't you have a loyalty program? like a long time ago. And he said, because why would I want to dilute the value of my product? One thirteenth, exactly. right? And so then he goes and puts out one of the most robust loyalty programs in the world in terms of, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that it's loyalty. It's kind of reward for con continual consumership, but it's not necessarily loyalty. I think it is an emotional variable. So anyway, but I, I just think it's kind of funny that at one point in time, he's lecturing me on the you know the impact of, of loyalty programs. And then lo and behold, they have a very profoundly cool one now so anyway. yeah but it's still it's still bribery you know what i encourage companies to do is turn your loyalty programs into experience platforms where people well, that's share. exactly where we're going to go next so thanks <laughs> okay. for the transition joe pine all, all right. right so talk because you've been doing immense amounts of work on experience platforms so let's explain what that is and what your work has been of late Sure. Here it's a, I've been doing this multi-client study with Peter Evans of the Platform Strategy Institute, basically combining all the work that's been done on platforms, uh, where you know commodities have always been sold on platforms. Goods began with eBay and Amazon, where you go to a digital place. You can think of a shopping center as a platform for a physical platform for goods as well. And uh, services with Uber and Lyft and Fiverr and TaskRabbit and all of those are all platforms. Um, but then we, you know, over the last 20 years or so and, in, and accelerating greatly is we've now have experience platforms that you can go to Virgin Experience Days, for example, 
and book some exotic adventure that you want to have and gift it to a friend or, or, or give it to your, yourself. Uh, Airbnb, you know, which started as renting a, you know, a couch. Well, you don't, you don't have to rent just a couch or just a, a room or even an entire place. I know you've worked a lot with Airbnb, Joe. But then they'll sell you the experiences that you can have locally while you're there. Uh, and, of course, virtually during the pandemic with, with um, Airbnb experiences. And then Amazon got into it with, Airbnb, with uh, Amazon Explore, as well as Amazon Prime and Live are all experience platforms as well. So there's just this explosion of experience platforms. And, and, and one of the things I, I, to get back to it is, is that loyalty programs really should be experience platforms, right? That's what the airlines are going to, Delta, hotels like Marriott, uh, MasterCard, you know, their priceless cities uh, platform is it's not just here's something we already give you for free. Here's something you, 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 you may not even known you want. Here's an experience that you can have. And let's use our points to reward you with something that is not directly what we are what we are giving you. And it, it, it no longer commoditizes yourself, as I think loyalty programs do, but then opens up these vistas and engages people in experiences. Well, I'm going to make an incredible observation. Both you and I have a little gray in our hair. Um, and with that, I think, you know, we may not have the same level of hunger for experiences that it seems like my kids do. I'm like, my <laughs> kids... If you wave like a free tchotchke to them, he's like, no, I'd rather have something that's unique to me, that's exclusive, that, you know, that opens my world in discovery. It's fascinating to me to see that maybe a whole generation of people this is designed for are really attracted to experiences at a level that, that as much as you and I are, I'm just saying they may have another gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All all generations value experiences, and they, and and they value experiences over goods, and they prefer experiences over goods. And, and research shows it makes them happier than buying goods. But what you see is those generations that that have born in since the 1990s uh, are basically grew up in the experience economy, grew up where they could revolve the world around themselves with their phone and and drop into these virtual experiences at any moment. And so you'll see that there's much more that thirst for for experiences uh, as opposed to just just accumulating stuff as it was sort of of uh, of, uh, you know, the thing to do for my generation and, and generations before. And then we have to we have to hire some place to put all our stuff as we get older. Right. Right? Well, think of the rise of storage units, right? It's exactly. <laughs> exactly. It seems like there's something wrong in the design of that. All right. So here's where I'd like to go. I mean, I, we could go on and on about this stuff. I know some of the future forward thinking you're doing is in the area of transformation. So let's let's talk a little bit about how do you go from experiences to transformation and kind of what's the what's the source material for your work on transformation? Well, yeah, the, the source is always asking what's next. And we did that with the experience economy, even way back when in the 90s, asking, okay, what's next? Can Is there something after experiences, right? If experiences are a distinct economic offering, what could be next? And recognizing that that experiences can be commoditized, just like goods and services can. Um, you know, been there, done that. That's the hallmark of a commoditized experience. And then customization is the antidote to commoditization. The customization lifts you up and differentiates you so the question is, what does customization turn an experience into? What If you design an experience that's so appropriate for a particular person or, or company for that matter, then, then, then it can't help but become a life-transforming experience, as we use the term, an experience that changes us in some way, a transformative experience. And that we call a, a transformation. 
A transformation is the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value. We're using experiences as a raw material to guide people to change. And we do talk about it in chapter nine of the experience economy, but we're continuing to do new research and, and write new articles on it because it's really hot on the heels of the experience economy today. And, 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 and not in small measure because of the, of the corona crisis, because of the pandemic we have, where we realized even more that it's not the stuff we buy that makes us as happy, that gives life meaning in particular. It's the experience that we have and that we're missing out on you know, with our family, with our loved ones, with our friends and, and, and community. And so that- but, but I, you know, here's the, the pushback I get, like a lot of things that have happened in 2020, um, people are saying, well, that's really not gonna stick around, right? Like people are, they're transformatively interested for a period of time, but they're gonna get pulled back into the mire of materialism, excessive work, non-human interactions. Well, the, the yes and no, there would certainly be some things like one of the things we obviously see is that there's tremendous pent up demand for experiences, physical experiences. But guess what? Digital experiences aren't going away. They they really ramped up to a level. The, the fact that we can now have contactless delivery and buy our groceries online and all that that taught people how to do that. Guess what? Yes, some will go back, but then more will. You know, here, here's an economist saying for you, which is that all change happens on the margin. Right. It's not that everything goes back. It's not that everything stays the same. But at the margin of where those where you, you, you those meet is where you have this shift. We have more and more people shifting. And it absolutely one of the things is that we recognize that we value the meaning uh, that we have in our lives. And that once forces to have not just not just memorable experiences, but meaningful experiences. And those often become transformative experiences, you know. So, you know, you talk about people reading your book over and over again, and I've read it more than once, to be quite honest with you. And it's not because I didn't get it. It's just that I get so much more out of every time I read The Experience Economy. But but I a book I read every couple of years is A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, oh, and I think for me, it's that constant search for meaning. In, in that case, in the most, you know, abject of horrors. Right. Um, but that there was still the capacity for humans to seek out meaning and that meaning was what is what sustains us. So to, to me, to know that Joe Pine is working on the, the junction between meaning and transformation is just making me go, OK, so when's the book, uh, The Transformation Economy coming out? <laughs> well, now is now I, I finally just actually in the last month realized, OK, maybe now is the time to start working on that. I'm working on an article on it. Uh, and then it provides the basis for thinking about a full book on it that, that does incorporate the concept of meaning. Because basically, I think of meaning to transformations as, as authenticity is to experiences. It's really the consumer sensibility. It's what you are looking for when you, when you buy these things. And, and increasingly, people want to, to seek out meaning through what they buy. And that increasingly means it's, uh, you know, they're looking for that, that transformation. All right. So... I timed this out so well that, you know, right now is the exact moment that I want to be pivoting from talking about where you're going to be going and getting us all excited and lathered up about what we can look forward to from you and kind of major high profile articles on the topic of meaning and transformation and, and then hopefully a book in the not too far distant future. Um, but I'd like to talk about what you're offering right now. I learned terms from you like offerings. I should use that term right. more, but that's what you, you've got several major offerings and I have, you know, I know people who've gone through your your expert experience, economy expert certification course, and it's been life changing in terms of their ability 
to transform experiences of value to the consumers or the organizations that they serve. So let's talk a little bit about that certification, that course. And then let's also talk about your other offering, which is a virtual version called On Stage. So uh, let's go there for a moment. All right. All right. Yeah. So in addition to the speaking, teaching, consulting and workshops that you do as well, we do have this uh, full week course, Experience Economy Expert Certification, that takes you through the book, that walks you through the book, gives you all the examples that we use, that most of which aren't in the book, uh, get, lets you internalize the framework so that you can then apply them to your own business or to your client's business if you're a consultant of some sort. We And because of last year, we, we started offering it virtually. So we've got a virtual course that we're gonna do in August. Uh, and then the, the full physical course we're gonna do in December in Atlanta, as well as we do private courses for individual uh, companies as, as well. We have over 300 uh, ex certified experience economy experts in the world today. And to a person, Joe, they say what you did, which is it really changed how they saw the world and how they, they did their business. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it's not like you're, this is a lightweight investment. You really have to be willing to yes. spend your time. I mean, I'm not talking on the economic side of the investment. This is really about investing yourself immersively in into something and being able to create those immersive experiences for others as well. So, I, but please go to the website because the cool thing about their website, Strategic Horizons, is you're not only going to hear about this offering or the on-stage offering, which I want to make sure I really do talk about a little yeah. bit more, but you're going to see the books. You're going to watch the career arc. There's a lot of other resources. If you want to get a hold of Joe for the purposes of having him come to your organization, either consultatively or in a speaking sense, um, which is like, you know, drinking from a fire hose, um, then please uh, stop by Strategic Horizons. I absolutely recommend it. I think it's a necessary part of anybody who's who cares enough to watch this thing. Uh, you know, if, you, if you've ever read anything I've written, you got to go to these guys. So, all right. So let's let's talk about on stage uh, and, yeah. and what people can expect from that. Right. Right. So on stage, you know, sort of goes in the opposite direction is for frontline personnel. It's so that anybody in any company can uh, uh, watch this, this set of videos. Right. So it's a video training offering and be able to understand that, hey, that they can create an experience with every interaction they have with customers, that, that they are on stage, that their work is theater. And it takes you through how to understand that, that even if your company uh, isn't focused on experiences, you as an individual can be. And if your company is focused on experiences, you can then amplify that by being able to be a full participant in making that experience happen with each uh, individual interaction that you have with, with customers. We even have single person uh, 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 companies that, that, that use it uh, for individual you know, professionals and how they interact, uh, but any business can take advantage of it. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, and you can find it on our website, website as uh, on-stage training. I can tell you, it's the kind of practical advice you're gonna get is gonna be amazing. Uh, you know, I've watched their work, uh, Gilmore and Pine's work, you know, really shape organizations as they do things like theme experiences and harmonize impressions and eliminate negative cues and uh, just real practical stuff here, folks. All right, enough of that. Um, all right, it's time for, uh, for, let's make sure everybody knows the website's right there. I put down, right, Strategic Horizons, let's go there. If you wanna go to a, if you're in the world of email, um, explore at strategichorizons.com, send them an email and learn more. But I, I start at the website, that's the place to go. So, all right, time for your, the lightning round. I warned you about okay. this. 
Um, and so here we go. Let's. Uh, these are just I just kind of fast responses, nothing uh, deep and thoughtful. And these should be something slightly more relevant to you. How about Bud Pine, electrical engineer? Right. So that's actually my father. Uh, who was in the computer industry in the late 50s. That's how I got into computers in, in junior high school, actually elementary school in Palo Alto. You know, we had a teletype in our house if people remember what those are. So that's why I got into the computer industry and then eventually at IBM and, and uh, everything happened since then. And he worked at ARPANET or the kind of the precursor to the internet. Right? Yeah, the precursor to the internet. He worked at the, on the ARPANET in the late 60s. And uh, and so, you know, one time I think he was one of the top 100, if not if not 20 or 50 programmers in the world working for all the major uh, manufacturers of computers and eventually started his own software company. So tell me about Delwood, Minnesota. Where the heck is Delwood, Minnesota? Is well, until, until my wife and I moved back to Minnesota in 1997 from Connecticut, whereas I moved out there for with IBM, I had no idea where it was either. But it's on the <laughs> northeast side of St. Paul. We discovered it. Uh, beautiful area. And, you know, it's got a thousand uh, people and three businesses with buildings, right? Two golf courses and an apple orchard. Uh, and the, But as it turns out, uh, one week ago, one week from now, a year ago, uh, we moved to Stillwater, Minnesota. So, actually, oh my gosh, I'm so behind in the news. I, I thought I had just, behind. you know, yeah. I wanted to get my wife on a lake like she grew up with in northern Minnesota. So, uh, this is why this side of my face is always so well lit because I got windows here where I can look out the lake at any time, and and it's and it's wonderful. All right. Well, uh, yeah. So for me, you said that it's a beautiful place, and having worked for Renewal by Anderson and Cottage Grove, um, I can tell you it is absolutely beautiful. About six weeks a year. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Let's go to the next one. Uh, I think I'll do them in this order. Let's do Julie Pine. All right. So Julie is my wife. She's my helpmeet. Uh, I wouldn't be able to get, uh, anything done without her because basically I do my thing here in my home office and she does everything else, right? She's out there mowing the lawn. She's out there, uh, uh, uh shoveling the snow in the, not shoveling, but you know, plowing the snow in the winter. Uh, she runs my errands and everything, so she allows me to be me. So, so she's the one in the background with a fan and the grapes right now, right? Exactly, right. right exactly. Right. All right, two more, <laughs> Rebecca and Elizabeth, and I'll be done. All right, so those are my two daughters. Rebecca uh, lives near us. My wife is with her this morning, helping her do some work at her house. Uh, she gave us a twenty-month-old uh, grandson. Uh, named Luke, which is wonderful. And in December, we're going to have a granddaughter, which is great with her and her wonderful uh, uh, husband, Ryan. And then Lizzie is the one that's most following in my footsteps. Uh, she um, um, got her degree in marketing and journalism. She joined a consumer insights company that I actually partnered with called Stone Mantle. Uh, then she got her MBA at the University of Chicago and joined Accenture as a strategy consultant. And so now we can actually have conversations and, and, and talk about business and so forth. And then uh, last year, somewhere around this time, uh, she actually joined uh, JP Morgan and is in their strategy office uh, uh, for them in Chicago. So just to bring this full circle, I'm working with Stone Mantle and a project associated with uh, Renewal by Anderson. So it's interesting uh, to know. I didn't know that your footprints were all over that brand, but there you go. Well, and then you're in Minnesota, I, should you give me a call so we can get together. I'll have to do that. And then as it relates to you know, the purpose and joy that you just shared around Luke and Lizzie and Rebecca and Julie, it's pretty clear that that book about meaning 
and transformation is going to be really a good one for you soon and all of us need it. Joe Pine, thank you for changing and transforming my world, transforming the way all of us look at human experiences. Uh, I do pray that people will take the time to spend on your website, get to know your work if they don't already, if, if you want to talk about you know, Luddites. If you don't already know his work, you probably get that category. But short of that, please uh, just invest in in the full scope of work and the uh, the career arc of Joe Pine and what he can bring to your organization. Thanks, Joe. Uh, that's all for Thank you, I guess. Take care. Yeah. And then I'll just for those of you, oh, I've got so many nice comments too from people. Uh, Denise Mosley Williams, wonderful. Thanks. Just lots of good stuff out there. So I want to thank everyone who. That's Dennis, not Denise. But yeah. Oh, it's Dennis. No, it's absolutely Dennis. <laughs> Let's 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 make sure. It looks like Dennis, doesn't it? That's yes. definitely Dennis. I, yeah, when you're reading it on the quick margin, it doesn't quite look that way. Dennis, I am so sorry. Uh, I think it's inauthentic to call you by the wrong name. All right, enough of that. Joseph Michelli here. We're gonna call it. Hey, I have. I feel so bad about not being around, but it really has been a kind of crazy time, um, and we're gonna be hit and miss. You know, we've got Chip Conley. Uh, I know scheduled for a future date and time, and a lot of really great guests. We. We move people as much as we can, but you know we're we're keeping some of our greatest and best shows, even if my schedule is a little bit maddening right now. But thank you all. Uh, we'll catch you on the rebound, Dennis. Since it's all good, I'm a fan. Uh, yeah, we was. Uh, all right, thanks everyone. Have a great, 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 great day, and uh, we'll catch you in the next available slot for the live stream.